0: 46% of Americans expect to leave behind financial obligations when they pass away, so it's crucial to make sure your family is financially protected. Policy Genius helps you find the right life insurance coverage by comparing options from America's top insurers with help from licensed, award winning agents. Secure your financial future with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get free life insurance quotes in just a few clicks. That's policygenius.com. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news stories and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon.
1: Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 279. And today in the show, I'm excited to be joined by Dr. Grant Woods to discuss a new, more ecologically friendly methodology for planting food plots that mimics how vast herds of buffalo and the native grasses of the Great Plains coexisted to create one of the most bountiful ecosystems on the planet. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx. And today I'm joined by Dr. Grant Woods. And if you're not familiar, Grant is one of the foremost experts on deer and habitat management for wildlife. He's a wildlife biologist, he is a consultant, and he's the host of Growing Deer TV. Which is an online video series which documents all of his work improving and hunting his proving grounds property in southern Missouri, and then consulting with uh, with other landowners across the country. And you know, I, I've been a fan of Grant's for a long time now. I followed a lot of what he's been doing, but I wanted to have him on the show today because he is one of the first people with a significant voice within the hunting space to embrace a new, more ecologically friendly and productive method for managing and planting food plots. And it's something that recently I've gotten really excited about. Uh, (laughs) With many of the good things, I guess, in my life, this uh, this is an idea that was actually turned on to me by my wife. It was about a year ago, just a little over a year ago, I guess it was, when she confronted me about how I was planting my food plots. I'd just been out um, on this property and I was trying to control this plot that just got overcome with weeds. And it was really frustrating. And I was talking about all these different chemicals I was going to spray on it and how many times I was going to have to do it. Um, And she was, she just kind of looked at me. She's like, why are you doing that? Why are you spraying all this poison out there on this place that you talk about, you care about so much? You know, it seemed to her. Uh, a little bit, uh, I don't know, a little bit backwards. And I, I just told her, well, it's just, it's just what you got to do. There's no other way. And in her own special way, she told me that that was kind of a bullshit excuse. She said, there's gotta be a better way. Don't be lazy, figure it out. And at the time I didn't really like it. And I still went and I used those chemicals cause I had to get the job done. I thought, um, it kind of stuck with me. You know, she had a good point there as, you know, as is the case for probably you and me and many other people like us. um, You know, I care immensely about the natural world, Uh, you know, the earth, the environment, whatever you want to call it, the animals and plants, water, the air, all this stuff, these things, um, they are responsible for the most incredible special experiences in my life, right? Hunting and fishing and being in the outdoors, I mean, these are the things that, that get me up in the morning and and keep me going all day. Um, So because of that, I've tried as much as possible to make sure that I'm treating, you know, these places and these things with respect and with care and and speaking up for them when I can. Um, But my wife kind of made a fair point that maybe some of the stuff that I was doing, um, which in my mind was, was trying to help wildlife by planting food plots, maybe I was doing some, some not so good stuff to get there. So, so, I got researching. I started looking into it earlier this this late winter, I guess late winter, early spring, and started trying to better understand you know number one, understand what I had been doing you know conventional agricultural practices what you know what's the the rationale for doing that, and are there any downsides to it um and if there are downsides to it, are there alternatives and the long story short on that is that yes. There are a bunch of downsides to the conventional way of doing things, uh, unbeknownst to me, and I'm just starting to learn all about this stuff now, but unbeknownst to me, you know, aggressively tilling the soil, uh, frequently spraying herbicides, loading up on synthetic fertilizers, all this stuff in a lot of different ways is damaging to soil and water and plants and animals and um, you know, I've, I've been doing that and I didn't really realize at the point at the time, but it does turn out that there are some other ways to go about it. That, that isn't the only way. And I'm not saying, you know, it's horrible that people do that stuff, but it, maybe there are some better alternatives. And I figured if I knew there are alternatives, I should probably explore them. So that's what I've been doing. Lots and lots of reading, lots of watching videos, starting to talk to people about these different ways to go about it. And and there really are some cool ways of doing this. So. There's some things within the traditional agriculture world called what people are calling regenerative or restorative agriculture in which people are successfully planting crops without disking them all up, without tilling it all up, without spraying all these herbicides and insecticides, without dumping all these synthetic chemicals and fertilizers into the ground. And, And they're doing this in a way that is, you know, first, it's better for the environment and it's better for the wildlife. It's also much less expensive in the long run because you're not dumping money into all those things. And at the same time, what they're finding is they're producing just as good, if not better, yields. Um, so that's that's big news in like the food world. But from a food plot perspective, it makes a whole lot of sense too. And, and that's where Grant Woods comes in because as I was doing all this research, I ran across some of the stuff that Grant's been talking about, which he calls the buffalo method of food plotting. Which is essentially his take on this regenerative ag process and how he applies it to deer and wildlife food plots. So that's what we're talking about today. Uh, Grant's going to walk us through his inspiration. And the science behind and the how-to for his buffalo food plot methodology, this system that he's developed that mimics the Great Plains and how they are grazed by vast herds of buffalo to create this immensely healthy uh, and productive food source for wildlife. And, um, man, I'm really excited about it. It's really interesting stuff. I've never personally gotten this into agriculture and food and planting um but but this kind of is a different way of looking at it that's that's particularly interesting so in the meantime we should probably just get to our chat with dr grant woods all right with me now is dr grant woods of growing deer tv and grant uh it's always a pleasure and a treat for me to get to catch up with you um so first off thank you for taking the time to do this
2: hey thanks for the opportunity mark
1: yeah and 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 as much fun as it is just to chat with you about what's going on at the proving grounds or what's new with me over here um i I'm particularly excited for this conversation because I personally have gotten really interested and in, and in, in just kind of started learning a little bit about some different ways to approach managing forage and producing food plots. And I've been doing a ton of reading over the last couple of weeks to kind of learn about this stuff. And I've gotten maybe more excited than I've ever been about the kind of food plotting work I might be able to do on the properties where I can do that. And as I was diving into all this stuff about a, about a new way of producing food plots, a more ecologically friendly way and, and maybe more productive way, as I've been diving all into all this, your name keeps popping up and your resources kept popping up. And, and I said to myself, well, I'd love to catch up with Grant, and I'd love to learn more about this stuff. So it was a great way to have these two worlds collide, and uh, and that's kind of what I wanted to talk about, Grant, is the system that I've heard you refer to as your Buffalo food plot system or methodology. Um, and I guess you know, before we dive into what exactly that is and how to do it, I guess I'm really curious to understand What was your inspiration for trying to go about putting together a food plot system that's different than the normal conventions out there? How did this idea spark for you?
2: Yeah, it's it's really a a long history that led to a pretty short change or short story. So I've I've been incorporated as a – I'm a consulting biologist. I just didn't really like the university system. So in June, we'll celebrate 29 years of being incorporated. And I've literally helped landowners from New Zealand to Canada and every state that has whitetails in between. And and food plot's a big part of what I do. And gosh, I started disking and soil tests and fertilizer and herbicide and kind of what I now call maximum input. But worse than that, I only focused on what was above the ground. Boy, this plant's growing more tons or deer really eating this one or deer didn't like this one too well or whatever. As I kind of moved through my career, uh, my wife, Trace, and I went to New Zealand to work with some deer farmers, short story, and they were growing these really funky broadleaf plants we all now know as brassicas, not just turnips, but many different species in the brassica family. And, and I actually brought some of them back and planted them on a, a project I was doing in South Carolina for a couple of years and noticed a, a bit of a weight gain and some other factors moving really quickly. And that turned into the company Biologic, partnered with Mossy Oak. They were great partners, still really good friends with them and designed all those blends for several years and just had an opportunity to sell my shares to Toxie. We're still buddies. And, you know, I was going to Stuff Mart meetings more than I was being a field biologist and I'm a field biologist at heart. So did that. And then here at my place in in Missouri, we've got a few acres of food plots and like every other guy trying to save money and you know, not put quite so much in and had better forage to track more deer, blah, blah, blah. And just realized that plowing, planting, whatever, wasn't the best it could be. And about that time, I started reading a bunch of the ag guys, kind of what you're doing now, trying to find a better way. And come across some guys in North Dakota, all the way down to Florida, that were using what they call regenerative ag, or regenerating the soil, improving the soil. And I, I kind of thought improving the soil meant you go to the feed mill and get another buggy load of NPNK and spread it on your plot. And these guys were talking about looking at natural systems, and I do a lot of native habitat management, prescribed fire, timber stand improvement, whatever, and replicating what was going on, as far as forage crops anyway, in a native prairie. And that just rang a huge bell with me because, and and she's 20 now, so several years ago, uh, I had my oldest daughter when she was about three, and my wife Tracy in Yellowstone. I was actually teaching some summer courses there back in the day. And we watched a huge herd of bison or buffalo getting ready to cross the Yellowstone River. And there was a little calf standing right in the front, and there's hundreds of bison behind there getting across. My little daughter screaming, Daddy, go save it, go save it. Of course, you know, it had been instant death for Daddy to go out there. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and by the way, the calf made it across the river just fine. But, you know, I'm, I'm a biologist by training, and I'm sitting there going, Huh, you don't cross here much because that many bison crossing this river would have massively eroded banks and just scarred land. And it wasn't that way at all. It was vegetation. And where the bison had went was pummeled to the ground. I mean, you know, hundreds of herd of bison weighing, you know, 1,500 pounds on average, I'm guessing here, 2,000 pounds on average, whatever, cows, cows, bulls. I mean, where they walked, they, you know, in group, not a single one, they pummeled that vegetation. They trampled it into the ground and they urinated and defecated a bunch. Well, they've been doing that forever in that area. And If you've ever seen a beautiful meadow in Yellowstone, it's incredible for it. Fertile soil, beautiful in a tough environment. And that really got me thinking along with these other guys talking and writing about how rich native prairies were, the remaining few acres, excuse me, native prairie we had. And I do a lot of prescribed fire here. We've cut about 300 acres of of red cedar that just was dense. You couldn't see, walk, hunt, do anything. We cut it, left it in place, didn't haul it off or anything and burned it. And the state botanist and I went in one of these areas. And we spent a few hours, not like all day, you know, looking everywhere we could. We spent a few hours and identified 176 different species of native grasses and forbs, flowering plants, forbs. 176, that's that's rainforest diversity. On an old south-facing rocky slope in the Ozark Mountains, Branson, Missouri, for, y- for y'all that don't know the Ozarks, I live by Branson, Missouri. Steve, really rocky country. And I'm thinking, how can this native habitat be so productive? And so beautiful, lots of wildflowers blooming and so productive. And it's kind of putting all this all together. It was a result of me terminating that vegetation. In, in, In this case, it wasn't buffalo trampling and it was wildfire, but kind of terminating it all at once and having tremendous species diversity, plant species diversity, let alone, as I've learned later, all the beneficial insects and that nasty word bacteria in the soil. So my place is so rocky, fortunately, in hindsight. I've never disc a food plot here in 17 years. I don't own a disc. I've never owned a disc here. Everything has been a no-till drill. I, I couldn't afford one at first, so I rented one from the county. Most counties across America have an NRCS office, and they rent no-till drills, if you don't know that. And later, just because, boy, when you go to rent a drill, it's plant season, and other people are trying to get the drill, so we end up purchasing one. We have one now for our own convenience of so planting when we want. Anyway... So I I never disturbed the soil more than just a little slot where seeds are dropped in. If you're familiar with the no-till drill, there's no tillage. It's just making a slot and seeds drop in. Mm -hmm. And at first, I was terminating that vegetation, whatever weeds or the past crop, whatever, with herbicide. And then I figured out, well, the buffalo didn't use herbicide. And I did some reading online. And I worked with a group, you know, called RTP Outdoors. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm not engineering at at all, folks. I'm a logic-brained biologist don't ask me to change your spark plugs or do anything like that and but they are great at that so i asked them to make me what i called a steel buffalo now they branded it called the goliath crimper but to me i wanted to replicate those buffalo going across the native prairie so it's a basically like a roller it's but rather than a flat roller it's got i don't know six or seven inch metal flares that are designed they're all the way around about eight inches apart but they're not straight across it like you might think they're at a a, 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 almost like a triangle, if you will, or a slope, one on the other. So if you can imagine this over voice, when the back of one flare leaves the ground, the front of the next flare is already touching the ground. That way it's not bouncing. If this was just like a comb, if you will, and everything's in a row, as your tractor pulled it with any speed at all, and it was hit, miss, hit, miss, hit, miss, it start bouncing off the ground. And I wanted this to break at these stems of the vegetation, not break it in half, just crimp it. It's called a crimper crimp it about every eight inches or so because if you stop the circulatory system of a plant or your arm or whatever, it's going to die. You're terminating it. So we went from using really candidly a lot of Roundup, two or three times a year, to now we buy literally maybe about a tenth of what we used to, and we only use it maybe once, maybe twice a year. And I'll explain why in a minute. So if you would imagine this that's kind of the inspiration. This is just a 30,000 foot overview, then we'll get into it. We've got, like right now, we're doing this right now. Our standing fall crop, which had cereal grains, you know, wheat, rye, oats, whatever, and brassicas. I've always got some brassicas in there. I know the benefits of them, and some annual clovers and stuff like that. And they're maturing now. That most people across America are seeing the wheat heads or the cereal rye heads or the oat heads starting to form. And if you squeeze them between your thumb, there's probably a little moisture coming out. That's called the dough stage. And plants in that stage of producing seeds die really easy. They're very easily terminated. So, we take our crimper to steal buffalo and we pull it behind a tractor and it's crimping the stems on average about every eight inches, maybe a rock that skips and it's every 16 or something. But it's breaking that stem, but it's not cutting it because, like, if you cut grass, it grows back, right? Like, you cut your yard, it grows back. Mm-hmm. If you cut wheat until it's really mature, it will try to grow back and compete with the next crop you're going to plant. So, we use this crimper replicate a herd of buffalo i'd rather have buffalo some people use cattle to do this but i'm not running electric fence all the time folks so i've got to use something mechanical uh and trample down if you will this crimper trample down the vegetation and terminate it and then i started thinking about the great prairie more and and again learning from ag people and we would terminate it and then take our no-till drill through there but if we didn't drive the same way the crimper had been pulled it bogged up a little bit, right? You're you're getting vegetation in the culters and the you know in the disc and it's bogging up and that took a little bit of skill. So start thinking about it. And a lot of seeds on the prairie, a lot of the plants on my bedding areas here make seed before I burn, and so they're falling to the ground. They're down in the duff. I used to describe fire; those seeds are not consumed in the fire usually. Now they're setting on pretty much bare or at least exposed. Soil, it's not truly exposed because there's a big root system. Fire only does from the ground up, doesn't do anything below the ground. Um, and those seeds germinate really rapidly. But, but they fail in a natural system before that vegetation was terminated. So I started playing with my blends back in the days of biologic. Now I just do it for fun. I started playing with my blends and coming up with, with food plot blends, cool season, winter crops, fall crops, and warm season, summer crops, uh, that would... Mature about the same time or fit this buffalo system, if you will. And so now I drill, I take my no-till drill, and I plant in that standing fall crop right here at my place now. It's been on the food plot. It's four to six feet tall. I'm six feet one, and it's at my head top in some plots. And I'm driving my tractor planting into what to a stranger might look like a weedy mess. My guys, you're putting seeds in that jungle. And I right now I'm planting soybeans. And I let the soybeans germinate. This freaks a lot of people out and get about four inches tall in the second leaf stage. And they don't take a lot because they're so young. They don't have to have as much nutrients and sun. You know, they're going to grow. And about the time they're four inches tall, I, I, I've already planted. I've planted through the standing crops. So there's never a chance for erosion, wind or water erosion. And listen to this, hunters, there was always food out there. I never cleaned the table. My annual clover I got bucks head down on any of clover right now, and I'm so pleased with the antler growth I'm already seeing because they've had food all year long. There was never a day, not one day there wasn't food in my food plots. I never disced. I never tilled. I didn't kill it with the herbicide. There was always food, 265 days out of the year. That gives you incredible antler growth. Bare dirt doesn't feed any critters, or any hoof critters anyway. Mm-hmm. So, and then after I've drilled and my seedlings are up three, four inches, I take my steel buffalo, to crimper, the glide crimper, and run right over that crop because now the seed heads on last fall's crop planted last August here are so mature that it dies real easy. And when I run the crimper over, yeah, I'm running right over these beans four inches tall. And the first time you do it, you're going, oh my gosh, it's painful. Yeah. But those plants are so young and pliable, they just pop back up. Like driving across grass in your yard and your wife goes, I can't believe you put those tracks in the yard. And two days later, you can't even tell where you drove just plants stand back up. Same way with young soybeans. I wouldn't do this over a foot and a half tall soybeans at all. But young soybeans are so pliable, other young crops the same way, so pliable, they just stand back up. And now what I've done, just like the buffalo, I've created this three to four inch thick mulch laying on the ground. And there are many, many wonderful features of mulch that can never be accomplished when you plow soil. Never. One is and, and I, I didn't think about this till I learned, and I don't think a lot of guys think about it, it keeps the soil cool and warm. So here, I planted soybeans on April 10th this year, the earliest I've ever started planting by a month. And right after, it wasn't because I thought, well, guys, it's going to be a warm spring. And I don't, you know, the Farmer's Almanac and the National Weather Service, they don't ever seem to get this stuff right. And sure enough, two days after I planted, it got below 40 degrees, three nights in a row and two of those had a real cold rain. I'm like, oh my gosh, I've messed up. I'm going to be replanting those. And those fields are beautiful right now. Beautiful, beautiful. I plant about 220,000 soybeans per acre. I never plant by weight, folks. I don't say, well, I plant 52 pounds per acre because soybean seeds, even if you're using the same variety, everyone knows I work with Eagle Seed. I plant their beans, but even Eagle Seed or any variety, if you've got a really wet year, each individual bean pod would be bigger, you've got a really dry year, it will be smaller. And that makes a difference going through your seed meter. So it's not 50 pounds of beans is the same from year to year to year. You want to look at the seed count on the bag. And a lot of folks I don't think know this. The federal government regulates. So, for example, corn is always sold at 80,000 kernels. They sell by kernel count, 80,000 kernels per bag. If you're buying a legal bag of corn in America, it has 80,000 kernels in it. It may weigh 32 pounds. It may weigh 41 pounds. It may weigh 50 pounds. Depending on the variety of corn, soybeans must be sold at 140,000 seeds per bag. The weight will change, but it's always 140,000 seeds per bag. So I do some simple math, come up with how many pounds I need to plant to get 220,000. I'm planting at a little bit of a high rate because you know deer are going to be eating some, groundhogs are going to eat some, rabbits are going to eat some. After the first month, I want to end up with a good population. So that's why I'm planting at a pretty high rate. I pull the crimper right over those beans, and I've now got this mulch layer, just like mulch in your garden, there's almost no chance for a weed to grow. It's under four or five inches of mulch. And that, that's just one thing. It cools the soil and it's hot. And I've done this test. We've published it. I have a, a pretty high dollar infrared gun that measures temperature. I can point it at your forehead, point it at soil, point at a car. And we all know it can be a, a pretty nice 75 degree day outside. Sun's been shining a little bit. You lean up against a dark-colored vehicle, and you about burn your hand. Well, that's the solar energy being collected by that dark color. The same is true, the exact same is true on the soil. You've got, you know, a brown, depending kind on of where you are, you know, maybe a black, your lucky soil, and that soil can really heat up. I was amazed last summer on a day in the morning, about 9 a.m., that was 72 degrees here, and I took my gun out. And listen to this, folks. This is amazing. There was a little place where I turned the corner. And my tractor tire had pushed all the mulch away. So the soil is bare. I tried never to have bare soil for many reasons, but the soil was bare, but I did a little turn. And at 9 a.m., that soil, the surface of the soil, was 132 degrees. This is published. You can see the video. On top of the mulch close by, you know, I'm talking eight inches away, not across the field. Eight inches away, so exact same wind, exact same sun, everything the same. On top of the mulch, which was a light brown, you know, it's dead vegetation. Think about dead grass, dead vegetation been laying there a month, really light brown, bleached out. It was in the 80s. Right beneath that mulch, just take your fingers, spread it apart real quick, shine the gun on there for it can start heating up. Was 72 degrees, Jeez. 72 in July. Now I want, now I want to share some data. This is not my data. This is from a big research university. Okay, at 70 degrees soil temperature, we're talking surface soil temperature at 70 degrees it's the ideal temperature for most plants to grow, and 100% of the moisture in the soil is available to the plant. None of it is being lost to what's called evapotranspiration or evaporating out of soil. At 90 degrees soil temperature, plant growth definitely slows. It's stressed. Remember, top of my soil without protection was 132 degrees. At 100 degrees, only 15% of the moisture in the soil, we can't irrigate food plots, most of us can, not only 15% is available for plant growth. 85% is lost through evaporation. Evaporation, 85%. At 113 degrees, soil temperature, surface, some species of bacteria start to die. Now, most people say, oh, that's good. Get rid of those doggone bacteria. You know, bacteria kind of has a bad name. Uh, Bacteria, like the human body. Yeah, we, we we get sick from some bacteria. But we're covered every inch by bacteria. Never believe some scent killer product, folks. I'm not talking any brand that says kills 100% of bacteria. Because if you did and you bathed in that stuff, you would die in a matter of minutes. We have to have bacteria on our body to live. Same thing with plants. There's thousands of positive species of bacteria, beneficial species of bacteria for every one bat. And if you manage your soil right, by the way, the good ones will swamp out the bad ones to take care of them. You don't have to use any chemicals. At 130 degrees, 100% of the moisture is lost and 140 degrees, all soil bacteria dies. You go from soil to dirt, it's just chemicals down there. That's why keeping that soil temperature moderated is so beneficial. So I'm in an area that's really rocky soil. It's We're pretty prone to drought. We can get a two inch rain and five days later it's looking kind of dry out there. But since I've started having this mulch layer down, my plants can go through much more of a drought than they used to and not show any sign of stress because I'm conserving soil moisture. It's not about getting more moisture. I can't control the weather. I can't irrigate. It's about using the rain and the snow that we get and saving it on site for when I do need it. And that's why we all learn the seventh grade biology, right? Swamps and prairies and whatnot, they used to act like a big sponge and then let it out as plants or springs or whatever needed it. But when we disc all the time, 100% of that goes away. 100% 100% of that goes away. So once I kind of learned the bi- biology or science behind that, I really started doing more into this. And my next, so my first step was keeping the soil covered as many days out of year as possible, many days out of year as possible. And that got me pretty much out of herbicide game. Now, I still use some herbicide uh, in my little small, what I call hidey hole food plots, you know, maybe a quarter acre, you know, a half acre, depending on where you are. Basically, a hunting plot, right? You've got a little hidey hole. Maybe it's a couple of yards from a bigger food plot. You call it a staging area. You can get there and not alert deer, and the deer can move on to a big food plot. Now you're not alerting them when you get out of the stand. A little hidey old food plot. I plant those two. They're great hunting strategies. But deer use them first, right? Because they're very secure there. And so they eat all the forage to the ground. I'm not building up a mulch layer. Since I'm not building up a mulch layer and the deer eating the vegetation, I don't have a canopy. Weeds are going to grow. Weeds are just nature's way of saying, This soil must be covered to be healthy. Nature doesn't differentiate differentiate, between a weed and a soybean or a wheat or a brassica. It just says, I want the soil covered because that's what's healthiest for the soil. Otherwise, I'm going to have erosion and moisture loss. So weeds are going to grow, and there's weed seeds everywhere, folks, everywhere, everywhere. Seeds are viable in the soil, some of them for decades, some of them for more than 100 years. I don't care what you do to the soil, and I'll give you a perfect example, I used to manage all the deer at Callaway Gardens, big fancy golf place just out of Atlanta, Georgia. And the family made some choices were four big golf courses there. It was like legalized poaching right around night with spotlights shooting deer to eating up all the pansies and azaleas and stuff. And and they let one golf course go. And, and golf courses, if you don't know this, get more herbicide, insecticide, fungicide, whatever side you want to talk about than anywhere, more than fields because the guys keep it looking perfect. And it takes a lot of synthetic inputs to keep it looking that way, like, a lot. They let one golf course go that spring. That fall, when we started collecting, nice way of saying legalized poaching, collecting deer, that golf course was eight feet tall in ragweed and all kind of even nastier weeds and ragweed because they hadn't been applying all those chemical inputs and nature will cover the soil somehow. It will cover the soil. So I figured out that covering the soil was good. And I started learning that not all bacteria is bad, like most of us are taught. There's really good bacteria in the soil. Again, remember, I spent most of my career looking at above the ground. Now I'm about 80% focused on what's below the ground because that determines how well above the ground does.
0: The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today, or visit us at o'reillyauto.com/meat eater. That's o'reillyauto.com/meat eater. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition And make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code Eater. Can you expand
1: on why soil health matters and what that translates? And, and, and I think you are probably about to go there before I interrupted you, but also what makes yep. healthy soil. I know there's a whole lot going on underneath there. You've alluded to it, but, um, but I mean, I would love to hear better understand the why.
2: Okay. Yeah. So soil health is obviously, you know, soil level and below a lot of it. And it matters because, you know, again, the native prairies, where does everyone want to deer hunt, right? Iowa, if we're honest, Iowa, Kansas, Indiana, the big prairie states. I live in the Ozark Mountains. It's all Timber. It's my home and I love it. But I sure do like a week of hunting out in Kansas every now and then, and make me feel like a better hunter and see bigger deer. So those states are banking on, are using... What was developed for hundreds of years by buffalo and wildfire and tremendous plant diversity, creating healthy soil. And healthy soil, first, the appearance should look like really rich chocolate cake. Really rich chocolate cake is moist and has a lot of structure, has a lot of pores in it. It's not just like solid flour, there's space in between. There's pores, it's kind of light and fluffy. That's exactly what good quality, healthy, Soil should look like it's dark, and it's dark, folks, not because of where you are on the planet. That's a lie. It's dark because of the amount of carbon content. And every time we disk or till soil, we allow massive amounts of carbon to go into the air. You've probably heard about carbon in the air now. Or you start sending me a lot of nasty email, I'm not a great big, you know, global climate change, carbon summits, whatever, whatever. I'm just stating the facts that when you till... Carbon leaves the soil by huge quantities, and carbon is the number one element of plant life. Everyone talks about nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium. Get carbon out system, plant's dead, period, that day. Um, I have found my soils went from kind of a light tan, about the color of a wooden turkey pot call, to chocolate. And that space in between is critical for the right amount of air and water to infiltrate the soil. Infiltrate the soil. Again, saving water not counting on the rain next week because we know sometime during summer that's not going to happen, saving the water we get. The soil is actually a little spongy, and it's got the right amount of space for roots to work really well and for these beneficial, as I talked earlier, bacteria, single-celled, multi cell organisms. And then the ever-critical, man, and I tell folks this, and they just they think, you know, boy, that woods guy, he's an idiot. But I kind of went from a deer manager, listen to this, folks, to an earthworm manager. Because <laughs> earthworms, I mean, this is so serious, right? Earthworms are the most important thing for building healthy soil. I want to just share a couple of numbers with you. And this research is out of Penn State, but it's been redone by a bunch of universities. You've got a pretty healthy earthworm population. Anything about earthworms are working. You know, they're working twenty four seven, three sixty five. In the winter, they're working a little deeper, warm and moist. They're working pretty shallow. They aerate the soil. They decompact the soil. No tractor can ever fracture or reduce soil compaction as well as earthworms. No tractor is going to touch every inch. If you've got a tiller, you fluff the top, what, 6, 8, 10 inches, but now you've got your tiller set. But right below that, you're making tremendous compaction. And I, I'm going to tell everyone how to prove that to themselves because they may not believe me. The standard test is you get a half-inch steel rod, like a piece of rebar or something, something that's solid on the end, not hollow like a pipe. And you're just putting your weight on You're just kind of leaning on it, pushing on it. You're not standing on it one hand or something. And it should go through the soil just fine. And when it just all of a sudden stops and you didn't hit a rock, that's your hard game layer. And it will always be just an inch or two below where you disc or where you till, like a rototiller. And the reason is, think about a tractor moving forward, and it's pulling that implement behind. So the physics are such that a lot of the weight of a tractor is being transferred to that implement And on a disc, the disc is, you know, eight inch, quarter inch wide. So tremendous amounts of weight are being applied to that very thin space. And it absolutely compacts the soil below where it's working. So it turns the top, releases a bunch of carbon, kills all soil structure, kills it. You took something that was loose and now you grind it up and it just settles. You actually can shrink soil. You can reduce the height of soil by tilling it. And then also, by the way, we're talking about earthworms. When you do that, you kill millions and millions of earthworms. You grind them up. Makes a little bit of fertilizer, but not near as much if you got them breeding, making more earthworms, and pooping all the time. That's why I never till. I almost refuse to help any client that tills anymore because I know so much better. I'm talking to clients like I'd go work on their land. So, a typical earthworm population can easily, easily poop out to not be crude, two tons of poop a year per acre. Two tons. Wow. Now, if y'all are sitting at home and you Google Stuff Mart right now and you want to buy vermiculture, vermiculture is very expensive fertilizer that's worm poop. There are farms that do nothing but collect worm poop in big troughs and sell it as vermiculture for plant people, either farmer, big-scale farmers or even houseplant people. And it's right now about $15 for two or three pounds. And just think, if you got a healthy earthworm population, guys, you can get two tons, and that's the low end, or more of that applied per acre just by letting the worms do their thing. What do worms eat? Decomposing plant material. It goes back to that buffalo or the crimper. Laying vegetation down, not when you disk it in. The old farmers talked about green manure, and you disk it in the soil. Well, then you've got so much air going in there with it, that that green manure breaks down really quickly. When you lay the mulch layer down with a crimper, or i.e. buffalo trampling it, it decomposes really slowly, which prevents weeds from germinating. And slowly makes worm food all summer long. The worms will come up, grab a little bitty piece of decomposing vegetation, take it down in the soil, and eat it. They're burying the mulch for you at just the perfect speed. And this is so amazing. Now you have the world's best. Perfect. Perfect. Slow-release fertilizer. And the worms are doing it for you. And species of bacteria, too. They're doing it for you. And then another factor, we you've probably heard of tea or compost mulch, mulching compost, and the tea that's the water that drips off that. Mm-hmm. Some people raise worms, a little home composter, and they catch the water coming out of the bottom, put that on their plants, and they grow amazingly. All right, you've got this mulch layer on top of the ground. If it doesn't rain and it's dry, your plants don't need much fertilizer because they're not growing because there's a lack of moisture. If it rains a little, they grow a little. If it rains a lot, they grow more you got this mulch layer on top, and when the rain goes through it, it takes minute amounts of nutrients, N, P, and K, and all the trace minerals down into the soil. If it doesn't rain, it doesn't release any nutrients. If it rains a lot, it releases more nutrients. It is the perfect time-release fertilizer. No system can be better. No man-made system can be better. And you can do it in a food plot. That's what amazes me. So at my place, literally, I wish we were showing graphics here. My soil test looks like I'm in the middle of Iowa. Most of my fields are at the high or very high level of all nutrients. I pay for a 14-way nutrient test every year. I test every food plot for research purposes. And I haven't added any lime, any fertilizer, synthetic or organic, like poultry litter, in six years. No expense, no tractor time, no paying the contractor, no buying the product, no running over the soil and compacting it, more time to turkey hunt, more time to mushroom hunt, more time to fish, because I don't have to spread any lime or fertilizer at all. No, my plants do it. And I'll
1: let, go ahead. Sorry, I was going to say, now there might be people hearing this and they're thinking, well, that's all great and good. Quality soil sounds like a good thing to have, et cetera, et cetera. But they might be wondering, what does this mean for the deer and the wildlife? Does good soil equate to anything else? And I've, I've heard you say that plants are the ultimate nutrient transfer agents. And I've heard you talk about how yeah. how good soil equals good food, equals what a lot of hunters are interested in, which is healthier and or larger deer, maybe better traction. Does all this stuff that we're doing to the soil, maintaining moisture, improving organic matter, et cetera, et cetera, does all that lead to better outputs for wildlife too?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I, I want to finish with just one last thing. If sure. you're getting a start to system and you've been using MPNK or synthetic inputs, it's like an addiction to your soil and you can't stop all at once. So I advise people all the time. If you've been doing that, that's fine. We all learn. That's that's awesome. Reduce your synthetic inputs by 25% a year. Don't do it all at once because you don't have the bacteria, the earthworms build up. And it takes those populations a little while to build up. So if you're doing it, do a soil test. The first year apply 100 percent get a good base second year apply 75 percent not of that old soil test of a new soil test because your soil is changing third year you know drop it knock it down by 25 percent a year and wean off otherwise you will not like the results healthy soil is full of not just the nutrients but all the micronutrients, not just mpnk all the micros because these billions and i want to paint a picture here if you have healthy soil you're feeding these bacteria, protozoa, earthworms, beetles, other critters, the equivalent of about the weight of two elephants a year per acre. That's why I said you can't go this all at once because you don't have any mulch on your soil. You've been discing, you've been adding NPNK, whatever. And when you have a really healthy soil life, we're going to call it, all the earthworms, bacteria, everything, below the soil, they're consuming about the weight of two elephants a year. And they're getting that from plant matter and really deep rocks, maybe At my place, not very deep. Some places are 10, 20, 30 feet deep. And they're breaking down that rock and bringing those nutrients to the surface. If you've seen, and almost everyone's seen this, a tree growing out of a solid rock bluff along the highway cut or something, you go, man, how does that tree do that? Mm -hmm. It's doing it by these things I'm talking about. Bacteria living there, helping that tree break down the rock and convert it to a usable form for the tree. When you have really healthy soil, you have healthier plants. Everyone, almost everyone, has watched a deer sniff acorns, pass one, eat one, walk 20 feet into a bean field, and eat a leaf here, eat a leaf here, eat a leaf here. Only cattle just stand there and eat everything in front of them. Wild animals are very picky feeders, and most scientists believe they sense, either through uh, light refraction into their eyes, smell, a combination of both, whatever, which plant leaves are healthier. So. Let me take that a step further. You've got a one-acre soybean field. They eat every doggone plant and leaf and stem out there. You're in Iowa, and you've got a 40-acre bean field or a 400-acre bean field. They eat the edges, of course, because there's some there any predations around. Then at nighttime, they're feeding all over that field. They're feeding out in the middle, and they're eating one leaf at a time, going to the next best leaf. So you grow the biggest deer where they can be extremely selective feeders on high-quality vegetation. I'll be the first to admit, a one-acre food plot is never as good as a 40-acre bean field because on a 40-acre bean field, they don't have to eat any disease plants, insect-impacted plants. They're just picking the very best leaves. They're eating the very best. But on a one-acre food plot that's had NPNK, there's a lot of petroleum products in NPNK, synthetic fertilizer, versus a natural, healthy fertilizer. There's no doubt which one's more palatable. And this is shown in all kinds of tests. And a real easy one is called a BRICS BRI X-Test. That measures, a real simple measure, I have a brick meter we use on our farm, measures the sugar content of plants. Deer have a sweet tooth, we all know that. The sugar, the more sugar content a plant has, usually the healthier it is. You want to have deer that just, I mean, man, they're just, man, I mean, they can't wait to get in that food plot. Have really healthy plants, and healthy plants require really healthy soil. If you're putting a bunch of NPK made off of petroleum products out there, what do you think your plants taste like? Now, do deer, deer eat it? Sure they do. You know, I don't really like sushi, but if I'm the last guy on the boat and all that's left is sushi, I'm going to eat sushi. (laughs) And that's kind of the way deer are, too. So, yeah, on my place, my deer are bigger. I'm in the Ozark Mountains, just north of Branson, Missouri. A lot of people have been to Branson. Uh, My property is split by two counties, Stone, named appropriately, and Taney County, Stone and Taney County. Our record for both counties combined. Recorded. Now, not all deer recorded. i grant everyone that, but a lot, hunters like to brag, so a lot of deer are. Our record, in all of record-keeping for these two counties, is 131-inch Pope and Young, no Boone and Crockett's, none. you think if they're killing a lot of Boone and Crockett's, somebody would have recorded one over time, back when that used to be really popular. Our best deer tagged, not our best deer grown, our best deer tagged is 173 inches. We produce multiple 150-inch deer every year we slammed the rest of the county. I'm not bragging. We've improved our soil. Our deer are really healthy. More fawns for doe. I cannot kill enough does here. I have really healthy deer. We struggle to get our deer population back in check. And we shoot it. we're shoot. we not like, well, we're going to wait till after a rut to start killing does. We tag every doe we can from September 15th when bow season opens to January 15th when it closes. Our deer herd is extremely productive because we have very healthy soil. Perfect. I mean, the, te- the testimony is extremely clear. And some of the farmers I know, they're using regenerative ag or the buffalo system. Goodness great. And some, You know, a lot of my farmers are really busy. They don't take a lot of time to hunt. Man, the bucks are producing, the amount of pheasants they're producing, that quality of those pheasant eggs and the survival rates are incredible. There's no doubt about folks. Another way to look at this is most estimates believed by the researchers that really study this stuff There was about 60 million buffalo just in the Great Prairie. You know, there were woodland buffalo over in South Carolina, Tennessee. There were buffalo in every state, literally. Not now, of course. 60 million buffalo in the Great Prairie. That's way more than we have cattle right now on feedlots. There's no question how productive soils can be if they're managed as they were meant to be managed. So I'm growing more tons per acre of higher quality food with less inputs. Big
1: cost savings, I imagine, in the long run with that, right?
2: Big, big cost savings. Now, you know, Trace and I did get a no-till drill. So that's a big hit. But you think about over time, no herbicide, no fertilizer. Most guys, you know, if you got an acre or two food plot, no, you, you're not really justified here. What you might do is get with two or three buddies and buy a smaller drill so you can share the cost and have it when you want it. I, I'm starting to see a lot more people do that. Uh, but for me, and the amount of food plot acres I manage, man, yeah, the drill paid for itself many times over by the cost saving. Yeah. So in,
1: meantime. Yeah. So we're we're reducing costs. We are retaining moisture, we're improving the quality of the soil. All these different things beneath the surface are leading to a much higher quality plant which leads to healthier deer and you're doing all this kind of in in step with how nature designed things to be. So you're having all these other larger kind of ecosystem benefits to the to the, to the rest of the wildlife around there, too. I'm sure that there's some benefits to uh, a whole slew of different species. It, from everything I've read and from everything I've heard you say, it, this seems like an absolute – no brainer if we're willing to get past like the normal status quo if we're willing to say, "Okay, yes, that kind of worked in the past, but this seems to be a just a much more holistically better process to go through um so my my next questions then are, and you've you've alluded to little bits and pieces of this as we go along, but I'd like to talk- start from this from the very beginning and walk through each step and and that is how do I actually do this? And that's the question I'm asking right now because I want to start doing this now. I've got a couple food plots planted on a property that has been you know managed conventionally, right? I've typically just ran, I've got one perennial food plot, but the other two are, are annuals. So basically it goes to weeds in the spring and summer. I spray it a couple times, try and knock them down. And then in August, I plant some kind of fall blend of, of, of cool season crops. But I want to stop doing that now. So right now I've got a couple somewhat barren, chunks of dirt with the beginnings of some weeds starting to grow. What would you, if we were going to do this and start the Buffalo Method, how would I start it? And and walk me through each step from, from today, if you could.
2: Okay. So let's start today. We're talking spring. And being really candid, most soils in America are degraded. Therefore, they're very weedy and nutrient poor. So step one is I'm going to take a soil test and just see where I am. And I want to see, you know, nitrogen is extremely volatile. May I add that above every acre on the planet are more than 30 tons of nitrogen in the air. The air we breathe is over 70% nitrogen. Now, nitrogen would kill us. (laughs) But fortunately, our body's created to breathe it in and exhale it out. None of it stays. Nitrogen has a three-way bond that's extremely strong, and our lungs can't break it. So it goes in and goes back out. But when I learned that I had 30 tons of nitrogen for free in the air, and all I had to do is make sure I always had some legumes in my blend, summer and fall. I could put that nitrogen in soil and not pay for any more nitrogen. Grant was a happy camper, and that's what I have not. And then when you build organic matter, this mulch on top, it stores nitrogen better than any other system known to man. So I'm out of nitrogen buying business. Period. You're starting with let's just say let's call it all this it degraded soils. It's probably been disc a lot, got low earthworm population. And by the way, folks, an easy test when you're starting. Take your shovel. Nothing beats boots on the ground. Nothing. No amount of science beats boots on the ground. Go out in your food plot. Just take a standard shovel, or some people call it a spade. Pop you over a big shovel full of dirt and see, are there holes in there? You can tell earthworm channels real easy. Are there holes in there where earthworms are? And you should be see if the soil's moist, not, you know, in a big drought, but if it's pretty moist. In a shovel pool, you should find a minimum of five. And and like last year in one shovel pool, here in the Ozark Mountains, folks, we found 36 earthworms, three dozen in one shovel pool, three dozen. And really, honestly, when I bought the place, I couldn't flip enough rocks and find enough worms to take my kids fishing, literally. Now I got three dozen, that day anyway, in one shovel pool, and it's not uncommon to find 10 or so in the shovel pool every time I go out there. So anyway... If you're not seeing any earthworms, we know we're starting at ground zero. That's just a really easy indicator of billions of beneficial species of bacteria. And I do mean billions. If you've got that, you may want you to do a soil test anyway. If your soil test results come back very low, you're probably gonna to want to add a little NPNK to first year. Now you make a decision. Man, I'm not solely committed to the buffalo system, then I'm gonna add 50% of what's recommended for that crop. And by the way, when you do a soil test, always tell the lab. I'm going to plant soybeans or I'm going to plant a cereal grain blend or whatever, because recommendations differ by the crop you're going to plant. So you tell them, and what I do, I say, I'm going to plant soybeans because I plant soybeans every summer or at least something in a blend of soybeans, and I plant small grains in the fall. So I get two recommendations on soil test once a year. My next step is if I've got a bunch of noxious weeds out there, I'm not just talking ragweed, but you got some bad stuff, maybe horse nettle or pigweed or something like that. You're going to have to control that with herbicide. You're compensating for decades of mismanagement. You're not just going to start all at once. So you're going to have to probably the first year or two. Maybe use a little herbicide. So I'm going to plant my first. If I'm plant, starting this in the springtime, you know, once my first crop almost always is Roundup Ready soybean. So if I have a weed problem, I can get on top of it and not let more weed seeds develop in that top little bit of soil profile. I'm going through the soil. That I, I've got. The, but I'm not disking the soil. Period. Period. I'm going to rent a no-till drill. I'm going to purchase a no-till drill. I'm going to go with a buddy and, you know, buddy up on a no-till drill. Some deer co-ops now are buying a no-till drill for the co-op, which I think is an awesome system. I'm going to use a no-till drill. And that does minimal soil disturbance unless the soil starts healing. We can't heal the soil by disking. Disking always degrades soil, period. Always. Did you know the average soil loss per acre in Iowa is about 5,000 pounds per year? That's the most valuable component of any farming. You can Google this, folks. That's the most valuable thing the farmer owns is his soil. Not his tractor, not his silos, not his barns. It's the soil that keeps him in business, and they don't treat it that way. Okay, I've got my soapbox. (laughs) So I'm I'm going to control existing weeds. Maybe there's fescue. Maybe you're starting with a pasture. That's a real common food practice. I'm going to control those existing weeds with a herbicide, and I'm going to drill— right into that terminated vegetation
1: now real and quick and i may, have, I may have, sorry yeah. sorry to interject but really quick question on that front before we dive too much further on the drilling side what if what if there just isn't a way to get a drill i don't i can't afford i don't i don't have buddies i can't get one from the nrcs office because they're they're all booked out i've heard a few people talk about ways to kind of implement this with broadcasting and some other alterations C- can you speak to that at all
2: Sure. Yeah, I had, had actually had that email question this morning from a guy in Michigan. Um, so hey, Daniel, if you're out there listening, we're going to talk about it again. <laughs> um, so a lot of people like that. You know, they got a two acre food plot, or they got a you know, a one acre high food plot on the back of their forty acres, but they're tired of seeing erosion in their food plot. What I wrote to Daniel was, I understand that's very realistic, and I'd been there myself. Trace and I started with thirteen acres. I have been there. Um, What you can do, you're still going to use herbicide, with a backpack sprayer or, you know, however you're getting it done, four-wheeler sprayer or whatever. You're going to terminate that crop. And if there's a lot of duff on the ground, like an old cow pasture or just big weedy mess or whatever, when you terminate it, the standing vegetation will shrink up. That's that's a non-issue. Sun will go right through. If you've got years and years of duff on the ground, A, that's good fertilizer, but B, you either have to disc that the first time to get rid of it. Or use prescribed fire. Very careful. When I say use fire, folks, that doesn't mean drop a match and let one hatch. It means you've got a plan. Uh, And you're going to remove that duff with fire. Fire will allow nitrogen to volatilize, but all the rest of the minerals just go right in the dirt. You're not losing anything. So uh, you can remove that duff. And the reason you have to remove duff is you need your seed to make good contact with the soil. If the seed is caught on top of duff and it gets warm and wet and germinates, it's unlikely it will get a root in the soil through the duff in time for it to start getting energy in, and it dies, it starves to death. So we've got to have seed-to-soil contact to get the system started. And in that case, I'm certainly planting round-up-raised soybeans so I can keep the weeds at bay. And then when it's fall time, it's really easy for me to broadcast my fall blend of, you know, cereal grains, brassicas. I like the variety. I like at least eight species in the blend not less than eight. There's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, and not like eight different varieties of wheat. I'm talking eight different types of plants, eight different types of, of, of general. Uh, and, and I broadcast those the soybeans because now they're weed-free, they're round-up and I've got a clean seed bed. And the secret that makes this work, and it can't be violated, this is the one shortcut people always want to take. Due to work schedules and stuff, I get this. You have to uh, broadcast the seed right before or during a rain. If you don't, a lot of seed will die of either desiccation or you will be shocked at how many rodents, and I mean, you know, not just squirrels, all the rodents and birds eat seed and what percentage of the seeds they will remove in a five-day waiting period before it rains and those seeds germinate. Astonishing. I harvested a turkey two days ago, not bragging at all, right off the roost, called him off the roost, come in, boom, dead. Brought him up to house, cleaned him. And this crop had a, you know, a half of a handful of soybean seeds where that rascal been digging in my food plot getting soybean seeds out. Critters eat seed. They love seeds. And you spread, you know, whatever, 50 pounds per acre on top of the ground, and you think, well, no one's going to know. I tell you, they tell their buddies. The squirrels start calling all their buddies, and they'll be running out of their little cheeks full of soybean <laughs> seeds. So yeah. do not plant unless... It's going to rain the next day or sometime real soon, or it's raining right then. I'd much rather plant before rain than after rain. For my, and also the raindrops hit the soil with a lot of force and splash a little dirt up on the seed that helps it germinate even more.
1: And do you need to do anything, even if even if we're talking about the spring planting, right? So before, in the fall planting, you've got the standing crop from the summer that you can then use. Um, but what about the the first planting? So you mentioned we're going to have to use herbicide to get that stuff killed off. But I'll just use my example. Um, to make it simple, so my situation right there's some weed growth, but there's definitely open soil still. So I'll go in there and I'll, I'll terminate the weeds um at some point here soon, kill off the weed growth. But then I want to get a, my summer, my warm season crop growing now. But I want to do it without my usual disking and then cultipacking all that in. So how would I go? I just go about broadcasting with with that rain. Do I need to roll over it? Do I need to do anything else to get that first one going?
2: Rolling Hill. Rolling helps. The cultivator helps get seed to soil contact, mashes it down. If you have that available, that's great. Uh, if you don't, I have I have buddies that, you know, do this all the time. They don't. And typically what they do is they depend on the quality of the soil, where they are. They plant 1.5 to 2 times the amount of seed. So if one of are planting equals 50 pounds per acre, they're going to plant 75 to 100 pounds per acre. And seed is cheaper than, you know, other, other ways of getting this done. So, so, you've got to increase that planting rate when you're broadcasting to get enough seed germinating. And it won't be a, it's not going to look like an Iowa field where a guy uses a $20,000 planter or a $100,000 planter to make it happen. Yeah. You just accept that and go on. Yeah.
0: And you can find what you need in store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER.
1: Okay. And so in the summer, you're, you're typically planting, it sounds like, straight soybeans for that warm season. But, but is that not true? Do you sometimes do a summer blend?
2: Yeah, I do. Uh, if I'm starting off and I know weeds are going to be an issue, I'm planting straight, roundup, ready soybeans. I'm planting eagle seed soybeans. Boom. And I still did that on some of my plots. Like I said, the smaller plots where I know I'm going to have weeds because the deer eat the canopy off and I don't get the mulch layer build up because of all the browse pressure in there. I'm planting a Roundup-ready soybean so I can control weeds and keep that seed base down because if I don't disc, I'll get on top of the weeds. Those weeds, weed seeds, if you think about it, are very small. Pigweed is, you know, I don't know, millions of millions of seeds per pound where, where soybeans are like on a variety you get 3,000 seeds per pound i mean it's a massive difference ragweed is very small every weed seed that's a problem in food plots that i'm aware of has a very small seed so if it's buried very deep in the soil and you don't disc it's too deep for it to germinate they're still there they're just they're just, they're not going to be able to grow they're not going to get enough sun to pull them out of soil so that's another part of just getting on top of weeds in a couple of years mm-hmm. you're, you're not disking you're not putting any new weed seeds on top you yep. So I'm going to do that in the summer. I'm going to get it established by terminating, making sure I bare soil, whether I have to disc or just like you said, you've got weeds but not a bunch of mulch built up. And then in the fall, I'm going to have these soybeans standing there, and they're weed-free because I could use glyphosate on top of them. And if I have to, by the way, folks, I'd always rather use a herbicide, or at least common herbicides like glyphosate, than I would disc. It does way less damage to the soil, way less, way less damage to the soil. And then in the fall, I'm just going to broadcast my fall-cool-season blend right on top the beans and if i'm using the system i want a little bit earlier maturing beans so if you're north you might use like eagle seeds northern manger blend you know you don't want to plant a bean that takes forever to mature and it's green until the first frost because then you don't have enough daylight reaching the soil for your for your crop to germinate your fall crop to germinate unless you're disking into it now i plant eagles really late maturing beans because i love having you know beans that are green and productive until a hard killing frost to hunt over because deer, you know, deer love soybeans more than anything. So I love that. But if I've got a really good stand with the closed canopy, I drill right through there. I drill my fall blend right through there because I want something growing as many days out of a year. And with my drill, I only damage about 50% of beans. So I end up with the perfect food plot. I've got the fall greens that deer love on warm days. I've got the pods or high in energy that they love on cold days. I've got the perfect food plot. There's no food plot better in my mind than one that's about half pods and half greens. I'm not talking side by side. I'm talking all together. I love that. That's my favorite plot, most productive to hunt by far. And you mentioned the fact fact that, that,
1: sorry, you mentioned a little bit earlier ago, the fact that you really like diversity in those, in those plots. And and you mentioned that you, at least in the fall blends, you're trying to make sure there's eight different, completely different species. Um, I guess now might be a good time to explain why that is.
2: Yeah, so different plants need different minerals. They all need kind of the same, but all in favor one. Like for example, buckwheat really likes phosphorus. Phosphorus is huge in nanodevelopment. development. Just you know, sunflowers take a lot of different trace minerals out of the ground and they have a massive root base that becomes organic matter because I'm never discing. So when those roots decompose, they become worm food and the next root, the next plant can just follow those roots and if it's a successful root it obviously found moisture and nutrients so i want to go down that same path again it's okay to have a blend in the summer if you're not having a big weed issue like some of my fields are now so i've got what i call the summer buffalo blend which is primarily soybeans but i've got some sunflowers and buckwheat and other stuff mixed in with it to give me that diversity different plants will have different size roots some have a single big bulb like a turnip or something Cereal rye has a mass of big, real fine roots, just builds a big mass of biomass in the ground. Wheat's kind of in between. Uh, turnips, you know, if you think about turnips and that bulb and the, and the deer don't eat the bulb, that's just a giant, slow release nutrient package for the next crop. I took a picture the other day. I had a new soybean seed laid about an inch tall right next to a turnip bulb. <laughs> that plant will skyrocket because as that turnip bulb decomposes, that soybean's there going, give it to me, give it to me, give it to me. I mean, it's just, you know, it's the perfect soil-raised fertilizer again. And, and so different plants grow roots to different depths. Minerals kind of stratify sometimes. Some are available at different depths than others. Sulphur tends to settle about 18 to 20 inches deep. Uh, so And again, I learned this from natural habitat on my land where I cut cedars, planted nothing, and have tremendous native vegetation. There's always a diversity. I... The only place I can think of in nature, I'm not talking man-altered, just a true natural ecosystem, that's kind of a monoculture, plant speaking, not critter speaking, is a salt sea marsh, which is a really harsh environment. Everyone else, I'm talking natural here, not a pine plantation or something, has a lot of diversity because that's the way our system works best.
1: In these summer blends... You're looking for uh, – you mentioned different diversity in species will give you the different depths and root structure, which is going to help you build up that soil. It's going to help you deliver the nutrients to the next crop. But then also you mentioned biomass. So that's that's getting uh, different amounts and, and, and structure and stuff above ground so that you get that thatch. When you knock that down and you plant your fall blend, that's what helps you get that thatch covering, right?
2: Well, let's talk about that thatch or mulch a little bit. So if you planted pure Egyptian wheat or sorghum sedan grass, and you can get 10, 20 tons per acre, literally. Now, deer don't eat that, so don't get off of folks. It's not like the magic bean deer food plot. We all look for the magic bean. I haven't found it yet. But you can build a lot of biomass doing that if you plant a high seed density. But let's remember some basic seventh-grade science. And this old nasty word, I don't want to scare everyone off, but photosynthesis. Plant leaves. Are the world's best solar collectors. No man has ever built a solar panel as efficient as a leaf, nor will they ever. So, in a food plot blend, I don't have you know a crop, a monoculture ten feet tall like Egyptian wheat. I've got some clovers down low. I've got some buckwheat mid. I might have a you know a big soybean up high because no monoculture catches 100% of the sun, and I don't want to waste any because sun is the source of all energy for all life. Period. And it's doing that through photosynthesis. Photosynthesis, you don't have to remember C6H12O6 and all that stuff. Just think about this. It's taking carbon dioxide, a waste product, and water, and making clean oxygen, O2, and carbon. Remember, carbon is the most important element to plant life, to any life. Human bodies are primarily carbon. And that carbon is converted through photosynthesis and really cool things in plant leaves and about 50%, depending on the species of plants, so don't quote me on this, it varies, but on an average 50% is called leaked out, or plant exudate, is coming out of plant roots. It's putting in the soil. That's how we turn soil black. This is so cool. And listen to this. This is, this is kind of deep science. I'll be really light on this, but the microbes in the soil that I've been talking about, the soil life that is so beneficial, they can't photosynthesize. So the plant is always an economic exchange. I don't care where you go, folks. Socialism won't work. I'm not being political. There's always an economic exchange. Plants are trading these microbes carbon, and the microbes are giving the plants whatever nutrients they need that they rob from a rock or you know soil or whatever. There's an exchange going on 24-7 below the soil. The science gets really deep, and I don't want to go any deeper now, but it is the most interesting science in my career I've ever studied by far, by far. And it's fascinating how the soil works together with these microbes. Remember, the Great Prairie was never fertilized, except for buffalo pooping on it, never fertilized. And the buffalo got that from what they're eating. There was no synthetic inputs. And you can do it in a two-acre food plot. You don't have to have the whole millions of acres of Great Prairie. And it doesn't happen overnight because your land has been degraded by past practices. We didn't know any better. It's not something bad. I've done this before. I've added tons of synthetic fertilizer. I didn't know any better. But you don't have to. I'm just saying there's an option. You don't have to. And so feeding these microbes by the photosynthesis, so one reason I like a blend is I've got a low-growing plant, or maybe two or three, a medium-growing plant, maybe two or three, and a higher-growing plant. They all have different plant leaf sizes and plant leaf structures, and the leaves may come off, you know, kind of erect or sticking up or flat or sideways. Those are all made so they can catch every bit of sun. I want 100% shade down to soil level. Keeps it cooler. I'm not losing any moisture to evaporation. That one rain can last me a month. You know, plants don't take much, guys. If you could get 20 inches of rain a growing season, but you just got it a quarter inch of a week, every week you got a quarter inch or whatever, depending on where you live and how long the growing season is, it'd be awesome. No one would complain, right? Never. No farmer would irrigate. But that never happens. So farmers irrigate because they're not storing soil, water, soil moisture, and food potters go, oh, I spent all this money on seed and fertilizer, and now it's a drought, and that doggone food plot's as slick as a pool table out there. You don't have to live that way. There are better ways. So we experienced a wicked drought here last summer at the Proven Grounds, my place, a wicked drought, and deer pretty much ate most things to the ground, except in my electric fences, where I was protecting some bean pods till, you know, late season hunt to make sure they didn't eat it to the ground, in a wicked, wicked drought, I had beans over four feet tall producing a gad of pods. So I'm just an ocular estimate, probably 40, 50 bushels per acre. A great crop of bean pods. And when I opened up those fences last winter, whew, talked about a deer magnet. <laughs> so you can store moisture and you can get there's nutrients there's plenty of nutrients everywhere i want, I want to share something here you know, not being too deep in soil recently there was a conference and there's a guy that owns a soil lab he mainly does the western states so a lot of us probably aren't going to use his lab but it's a good lab real high quality soil lab and uh and he was kind of fighting this regenerative ag thing we're talking about here because i mean he's he's a soil scientist he's all about mpnk and, and i'm not knocking the guy at all he's a brilliant guy and a really smart farmer and this lady, this brilliant scientist from Australia, that's been doing some great work in Australia about improving soil health. I mean, they've, you know, they you don't have all the rules America has, and they can spray any herbicide, pesticide, fungicide, whatever down there. Their soil's really gotten degraded. Yields are way, way down. It's a national concern down there. And she's talking about, well, sir, how much phosphorus is in your soil? Water? Is it, on the soil test, it says available phosphorus, not phosphorus. Phosphorus. That's, that's now any form that plants can use. The phosphorus report of a fertilizer bag is toxic to plants. It has to go through a change before plants can take it up, literally. So he told her, well, I got, you know, what he said, 80 pounds per acre or whatever. He said, no, no, no. I want to know the total phosphorus in your soils. He whips out his napkin. He does stuff, and You can tell he's going, no, that can't be right. He does it again. He says, well, about 10,000 pounds per acre. Now, 10,000 pounds per acre if, if that was available to plants, it's not now, but if it was available, if you had the right microbes doing this and stuff going on, how many years could you go without fertilizing? These ciphers and ciphers and so "Well, I don't know for sure, but my grandkids would certainly never fertilize. <laughs> Ever. Not one time. These nutrients are in the soil, folks, but we've killed the soil life that makes it available to the crops. So is this right for everyone? No. Man, you got a quarter acre food plot, and you're taking your lawnmower and the garden tiller out there, and getting something green to grow shoot a deer over. Man, I've done that. More power to you. That is awesome, awesome. I want everyone involved with the soil because I think just an understanding of soil and gardening or flower pots is really healthy for mankind because you are just a little bit more respectful of what it takes. But if you have the time or the inclination, or you're in a co-op and you get you know have an opportunity. Improving soil health, not the first year, but over time will significantly reduce your cost of food pots, which what I've done here proven now is that cost savings I've taken, not much, but a few acres a year, added more food pots. I kind of got a food pot budget my wife Trace and I, you know, kinda talked about and as over time as I have less inputs, I can make another acre or two of food plots. And we all like more food pots, right? More places <laughs> to hunt, and hang a stand. Mm-hmm. So over time, does this work? Absolutely. There's some really awesome examples uh, in, in the ag side of taking the Chihuahuan Desert down to Mexico. If you've ever hunted coos deer down there or anything, I mean, it's, I don't know, I'm going to guess here, 70% bare dirt showing a few cactuses and sagebrush yeah. plants and whatnot to lush seas of grass for cattle and their cattle are gaining weight like crazy by doing it differently than grandfather did. And it's kind of the same way about us. In my, I, I grew up on a farm, folks. I had pulled a disc of blue million miles thinking I was doing good work. But it just takes an open mind and learning a little bit more and replicating nature. So some people say, well, that's different traditional ag. And I say, no. I say the buffalo, hence I named it the Buffalo System, and the Great Prairie, the richest soils known on the planet, folks, before man got there and really messed up, the, the few acres of native soil we have left in the prairie. Scientists go there and test, and it is shocking, shocking how rich it is. I call that traditional ag. I like and that. I call maximum maximum tillage and maximum synthetic input conventional ag, because that's the convention of what we're doing these days. Yeah. But even in Illinois, I work in Illinois a lot. I was driving through there, and I just noticed the past two or three winters. Used to, I called Illinois the land of chisel plow. Everything was chisel plowed every winter. I've worked for Greg Ritz there and a bunch of other people you know, and Greg's like, man, I'd like grow a little bit bigger deer. And I said, Greg, you, you got a timberland. Greg, this is on Greg's show, so I'm not speaking my his back. Greg put this on his own television show. Your timberland is mature, canopied forest. There's nothing, not much going underneath it. And all the ag land surrounding you that's so lush and so productive in the summer is as bald as my head five months out of the year. There's no cover or food for deer or turkeys. If you want to grow bigger deer we got to develop some food plots that have food 12 months out a year because deer, deer can store a lot of fat, and they do all through the Midwest, and grow some awesome deer. We all know the juries and a lot of my buddies are, are growing awesome deer on a conventional ag base. Think about now, and, and I'm really good friends with Mark and Terry, not talk their back at all, been friends for decades, but they've got some really good food plots too, right? When those, when those ag fields are gone, and they leave a, a fair amount of beans standing and whatnot, but when the neighbor's ag fields are gone, they got the only food in the neighborhood. course they're growing great deer because they got food all winter long mark would not have it where his deer did not have food all winter long and and i'm busting all kind of county records and doing great but i've got high quality forage year round and and if i disc like in the fall let's just think about this i disc in the fall right before hunting season get my fall food plots ready boy i feel good man everyone kind of does this on labor day labor day just load up tractor, go make food plots yeah right before deer season And i turn all my ground from some kind of forage, weeds or whatever, to bare dirt. And there's a difference between dirt and soil. Why don't I just tell my deer? No food here. Go somewhere else. And so I disc. Maybe I disc and plant the same day. It's two or three weeks before there's enough food going there to really attract the deer. You might get a little green fuzz in the first week, but you're not providing any tonnage for a while. Why don't I just tell my deer? Hey, it's deer season, and you need to go feed somewhere else. You're not welcome here. I call that cleaning the table. And, and so here, we never clean the table. Like, so right now, I've got annual clovers in my fall blend, and until my soybeans get big enough to run the crimper over them, my deer are eating on clover right now. And this is another cool thing. How many of y'all have planted soybeans or something really lush like that? You plant an acre, and then you go out there maybe a week later, and you got pretty good germination. Oh, man, it's going to be an awesome year. And you go out there three weeks later, and it's lip high because the deer ate everything. I don't have that big issue with that anymore because now – I've got a four-foot-tall fall crop out there being a greenhouse over my young soybeans and a deer eating the clover because deer don't like to stick their head all the way down in that foot-tall clover where they can't see, smell, or hear the booger bear coming up behind them. And it's it's like a little mini greenhouse over my soybeans. It lets them get a good root system, going a good start. So deer browse isn't as much as an impact.
1: I got a question about that a little bit, Grant. You, you mentioned how you're now – planting right into the, standing, um, into the standing summer crop. So I'm talking in the fall now. You've, you've grown your soybeans or your soybean blend with other things, and, and it sounds like a really important thing is if you're going to have that blend be, in addition to soybeans, you want to make sure it's a legume so it fixes a lot of nitrogen into that soil, which is essentially your natural fertilizer for your fall blend. But you mentioned that you're not yep. fully terminating it until after you plant, right, to get that greenhouse effect. What if I'm, What if I'm going to do the broadcasting thing, though?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. In the fall, all I do is drill through my standing beans. I never terminate. Them. Never I'm going to let the beans and drill go ahead and ripen and make full pods. I want them to ripen and make full pods. And if I broadcast, and I a broadcast here, let's say I've got, again, one of these smaller plots, let the deer at the top off the beans, I got some weeds in there, whatever. I may spray that plot and then either drill or broadcast my fall seed right into that plot. So I'm still leaving a lot of her beans are left, and it's warm enough. I'm, I'm planting here in mid to late August, and you know, on when I've got enough soil moisture, I want to plant. Everyone should plant their fall crop when there's at least 45 to 60 days before a really hard frost. So you got some time to grow some tonnage or some biomass to feed deer and for your next year. But more importantly, to feed deer. So I don't terminate anything in the fall unless I got a lot of weeds and I might use a herbicide. I only crimp in the spring.
1: Okay, and you can get you can get enough sunlight down to, to get that stuff to germinate even through standing beans and stuff like that? Or does that just not matter? Because yeah. So
2: again, it's, no, it does. If it's a really thick crop and I drill through there, about half the beans are going to survive. The other half are laying down. I'm getting sunlight. Gotcha. Now, and if I broadcast, I'm not broadcasting into a really full stand because I know it would shade out and I, I wouldn't get a good fall crop started. Okay. I plant the Eagle, I plant eagle. I'll just tell you exactly what I plant. either plant eagles, wildlife managers blend, or order, group seven, uh, big fellows. And those rascals stay big green leaves until uh, the first hard frost, which is awesome for maximum change of feeding deer. But it's not so good for getting a fall crop established. So I just drill. If the deer didn't eat them real hard, I drill right through there, and I'll knock about half of them down. Some of them will stand back up. Some of them won't. And I, I have about a roughly a half a crop of beans and I have a full crop of my fall blend coming on.
1: Can you describe what that fall blend is in detail? Because from what I understand, you're not only trying to pick, you know, attractive forage blends for feeding the deer during the fall and winter, but I also understand that you're trying to plant things that will be there the next spring, right, to keep this cycle going. So can you describe what those, yeah. what those would be?
2: I I'll try to describe in general, not because I'm hiding I don't have any magic secrets or anything. I don't sell any seed or anything like that. It's because I change as I learn more, I change every year. So let's take this, I think, a more accurate way. I'm probably gonna have one to three and probably two to three small grains, cereal rye, oats, and wheat. And I'll probably have a bit more rye than the others because it grows taller, makes more biomass, and puts more roots in the soil. And check this out, folks, I'm not I'm just telling you here. Rye has allelopathic qualities. Big word. Let me break it real simple for you. You probably noticed on a walnut tree, the grass doesn't grow too well. People don't like walnut trees in the yard because grass doesn't grow well. That's because walnuts put out a toxin that keeps other plants from growing so they can get all the moisture and nutrients to their cells. When you terminate rye, a lot of species of cereal rye, it does the same thing. It won't hurt a soybean or corn or buckwheat or even a big clover seed. It's just not that strong. But as we talked earlier, pigweed, ragweed, a lot of these weeds have extremely small, almost like pollen floating through the air, sized seeds. It will work on them. One of my big weed control features is when these plant brasses have a different set, but also lilyopathic qualities. So I'm going to have some, some cereal grains, including a cereal rye and some type of brassica in my blend to help control weeds in addition to feeding deer. I'm going to have a clover or two. I'm always going to have annuals, not perennials. I've become a huge fan of annual clovers because I used to maintain a lot of perennial perennial clover plots, and I've written a lot about this and showed it on video and whatnot. But in reality, I learned over time, guys, those are expensive, and they take a lot of herbicide and fertilizer to keep going. It's tough to keep the weeds out of a perennial clover plot. And if we're all honest, and you may be a little better in northern Michigan or something, but for most of us, you know, let's say from Iowa south, uh, we have some hot, dry periods here in almost every summer, and our clover, it won't die, but it'd be dormant. And it's not feeding anything. And I need I need food out there 365 days a year to go to big santlers and the most ter- turkeys I can. So I found that a really strong annual clover in my fall blend works perfectly. So a regular clover pot is really strong from when the temperatures start warming in the spring, they've got some moisture till maybe June, May, depending on the, how the moisture and the heat goes that year. Those dormant are not very productive through all summer and may or may not pick up in the fall, late fall, once the temperature's cool and we get some moisture. That's a bunch of months in there I didn't feed anything. So you can have just a couple acres of clover, depending on the size of your property or less. And when it's really productive, man, it, it outgrows the deer. They can't eat it fast enough. I'm sure you all seen this. And when it's dormant, I don't care if you got 500 acres of clover, it's not feeding anything. But when I went to the annual clover in my fall blends, the fall buffalo blends I call them because they work with the buffalo system, man, it comes on when clover's gonna grow great, late fall, early late winter, early spring. It's producing tons. And about the time it's starting to wane is when my soybeans are coming on, which are much more drought-hardy and heat tolerant. So I, I, for me personally here, I'm out of the perennial clover plot. I'm gonna have an annual clover or two in a blend. I'm gonna have some cereal grains in a blend. I'm going to have a brassica in the blend, and maybe two, maybe like a radish and some type of turnip or a rape. A rape is just a non bulb producing turnip. And I'm probably going to have a broadleaf in there, which will probably die at the first frost, maybe a buckwheat or something like that. So I've got all these different root structures. Plants are pulling way different minerals out of soil. So when they are either consumed by deer, because it's like feeding your deer a multivitamin, it's either consumed by deer or it's terminated on the plot, and, and putting those nutrients right back at the surface for new new plants that have a, an inch long root. You can have all the nutrients you want 20 inches deep, but your crop will starve to death before it gets root to them. So I'm what's, I'm doing what's called mining or recycling nutrients. I'm taking nutrients from the deep, bringing them up to the surface for either critters to consume or to decompose and be released on the soil surface so they can start working their way back down to the soil for different depths, of the different plant
1: roots that makes sense and and so then you've got this diverse blend of carefully selected foragers that they grow that fall you're feeding your deer you're enjoying some great hunts over it you're making sure these are healthy deer heading into the winter now closing up the cycle or the cycle begins again the next spring now um in my in my example scenario now i've got a fall crop that's been on these food plots now, it sounds like what you're doing is in, you're you're crimping, terminating that whatever's come back the next spring, right? So can you just describe, can you close it out with what happens that next spring now that you do have something that's yeah. across all the food plots?
2: If, if I don't terminate in the spring, I'm not worried about in the fall at all, right? My my soybeans or even sunflowers, whatever I've got out there, is not going to produce enough seed unless you've got way more food plots than you got deer, and very few of us have that. For any of those seeds to become a weed... And a weed is just a plant growing where you don't want it. So, you know, a sunflower is almost never a weed, but if you let a sunflower seed go to a full head and it makes, you know, hundreds or thousands of seeds, and all of a sudden they come up when you're trying, you know, a hundred of them come up in a square foot, nothing good's going to grow there. It's just too much competition. So I really don't like plants volunteering. It seems like, well, I could save so much money, but southerners get this. You almost never count on a volunteer pine stand to pay your kid's way through college because... That pine tree is going to put off so many cones and seeds, it's too thick or too thin, and none of the wood's really productive. That's why people plant pines on certain spacings to, to maximize production. Same thing with food pot seed. Same thing. So I'm going to plant crops in the summer that I – there's just no where deer are going to eat them. I'm planting stuff designed for deer to eat, and they may get big, but the deer browse them enough, like soybeans. They make pods that the deer don't eat, but sometime during the winter, a deer, a turkey, a squirrel, a dove, whatever is going to eat those things. I'm not worried about volunteer soybeans. I don't think anyone really is, unless you're a nag farmer and you're worried about two soybeans in the middle of a 200 acre cornfield or something. Uh, in the, my winter crop, with all the cereal grains, you know, common ones are cereal rye, not ryegrass, cereal rye, oats, wheat, those are all common. And our brassicas, if you've ever let a brassica go to seed, Those little rascals make one bulb and 40 million seed, I'm exaggerating, thousands of seed per plant. And they're very viable seed if you let them get hard. So right now, my brassicas have that little two-inch long spike. Looks like a pea, but much smaller, with 10 or 11 seeds in there. Before those things are black and hard, I'm terminating with the crimper. That's why I terminate in the spring, A, to get enough sunshine for my soybeans to grow good, and B, so I don't have a bunch of volunteer coming up at the wrong time of year. You don't want wheat or rye or oats growing in the summer competing with your soybeans. That would be that would not be good. So I want to terminate that fall crop in the spring to give my spring crop ample room to grow without weed. Again, a weed is just a plant growing at a place you don't want it to grow. So like you know, if you've got multiple rows in your rabbit patch, it's a really good thing. If you got multiple rows in your food plot or in your wife's garden or somewhere, it's a really bad thing. It's a weed or a good thing. Depending on where you are, um, so I terminate in the spring. I brought a full cycle, and and I'm and I'm drilling and and folks. Some people ask me, well, you know, how do you break that bean cycle? I've been planting beans in the same plot here at Proven grounds for 16 years in a row, and still growing great beans. And and the magic there is, I've always got a fall plot, and it's a very diverse fall plot. And I may have diversity to beans. I may or may not, but I've got a very diverse fall plot. So I am rotating crops. I'm just doing it faster than some people do. I'm rotating. I've got that eight-way-plus blend in the fall that's really working on the soil and different root ducts, nice and structures, and different chemicals being, again, exuded out of root tips. I'm rotating every year, twice a year.
1: Now, what if in this scenario we we make it to the spring and we want to terminate, but what if we don't own a crimp? How can I keep the the basic – Tenants of this principle without a crimp.
2: You can terminate with herbicide. I, I'm I'm not anti-herbicide at all. Gosh, it you know help feed a bunch of people right now. But I think we're moving to systems worldwide where they may not be as important. Um, but so I, I want to use. I'm not anti-herbicide. I want to use the least amount I have to purchase for many reasons. Hey, you, you know you're putting chemicals in soil. We can't deny that. And, and B, it's expensive, and C, it's time consuming to, to put on the ground. So. You, but you can terminate with herbicides. plots. I, I do this myself. You can use a backpack sprayer. We've come up with, and pass it on to RTP, a little foot crimper. Now, folks, if you want to train for elk hunting, this is the tool. It's a like a tuba stick. It's not, but it's like a tuba stick. It's about, I don't know, three, four feet long, and got a couple of anger arms on the bottom. There's much more science than that, and I'm just kind of painting the picture on a rope. And you just you put one foot on there. And you use the rope to pick it up, move it four six inches, step down, and your weight becomes a crimper. And I use this in my small food plots where I don't have time to get the tractor in or they're back in the woods I can't get the tractor to. And on my small plots, I broadcast seed, and then I crimp the existing vegetation with that foot crimper. And I wouldn't recommend this for a 10-acre field because unless you're a really good athlete, but small, small fields even I can do. <laughs> and it's a tremendous tool. They're a great tool.
1: And that's 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 available for sale, or that's just a prototype thing you were using.
2: No, it is. No, no, no. They took it and improved it, and changed it, and did stuff better. And yeah, they have, have them for sale. I don't even know the price, but they have them for sale. My my prototype is not near as good as what they have. Okay. Uh, but yeah, we've had that on the show, and I especially like it again from a little ideal food box, where it's either can't or it's inconvenient get to get attracted to. Rather than disk it up, I can just broadcast it in that standing crop and then use my foot crimper to go in there and mash down the mulch.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, I've heard some other people um, t- mow instead of crimping. And if they don't have a big crimper, they've done kind of what you just described, but then they mow to get the vegetation down and, and to form a, you know, a, a greenhouse effect over that seed to get it to germinate. Is there any downside to doing that? Uh, or what are your thoughts on using that as an option?
2: Yeah, that would be so simple, and I would love to do that if it worked. It'd be simple, but every mower I've used—I mean, I've used flail mowers, and I've got the Bush Hog type mower, and whatnot, even my lawnmower—they don't throw the mulch out in a clean pattern. So if you remember earlier, where we were talking about soil temperature. I'm not aware of any mower that just lays it down like a crimper does. And then a lot of weed species, the grass weed species, you mow it, they're growing back. You can't, you cannot mow Johnson grass out of existence. You know, it, it's just not going to terminate as good. Mowing. Cutting of plants is not the same as breaking the whole plant's circulatory system and then spending all its energy trying to heal those breaks. Mm. So, a couple of factors. One, you're not going to get an even spread of mulch. It's going to be really thick in some places, which will shade out your crop, and no mulch in other places, which allows that soil to heat up and kill the beneficial bacteria and evaporate a lot of moisture. So, you know, if you've got a mower that just lays it down perfect, that would be ideal. I've yet to find that mower. Okay. Hay crimpers, uh, you know, I was raised on a farm, hay crimpers, whatever they you know' there's a reasonably rake because hay crimpers don't put it in the right place all the time, so I don't think mowing is as good of option,
1: okay. So that's that's the process. I mean, that's the cycle. The only other question I guess I have about the process is when it comes to using a drill, if if we can find a drill, if we can share a drill or rent one or whatever, yeah. um, at least me personally, yeah. it seems a little intimidating. That's an implement I've never used. It seems like a little bit more involved, a little bit more to it than just dragging a, you know, a disc behind my four-wheeler. Do you have any just Do you have any advice or tips for things to think about when using a a no-till drill for the first time or just anything we should be thinking about?
2: Yeah, you know, they're they're really not. The two things to, I mean, besides the normal mechanical stuff, you could have a, mine mine doesn't have any tires. Mine's a three-point hitch model, which I really like. It makes turning, I equate a pull-type drill and a three-point hitch to a regular mower and a zero-turn mower. When we got rid of our regular mower and went to zero-turn mower, I now spend half the time mowing the yard. It's amazingly faster. And when you've got the pool type, you've got hydraulic hoses and not more parts to break or slow you down, and you pull up, and then you got to back up, and you got to get it just right within a few inches, where with three-point hitch, you just back up or you want it, drop it, and go, and there's no hydraulic hoses or anything to break. It's much simpler, much, much simpler. A, B, the only thing to use in a drill, no matter which type of drill you use, is calibrating. And, and you want to calibrate every year because, again, seed size is very – you know, it may be a wet year and boy, the corn or soybean seed or clover or whatever is really big. And the next year, it's really dry and they're really small. So even if you're planting the exact same products, you still want to calibrate. So you're planting the right amount of seeds per acre, not too many. So they outcompete and not so few that you get weeds everywhere. Uh, and, And different drills calibrate differently. I will just share with you, I have a Genesis and it's really cool. It's got a little seed tray. So all I do is turn the, the all drills have some contact with the ground and that drives if you will the seed meters it so as that wheel on the ground turns it knows faster or slower how fast to turn the seed meters how much seed to put out so you turn your 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 drive wheel if you will x amount of times i i do the math and do a hundredth of an acre it's real simple most drills have this published in their manual to turn it 22 times or 25 or whatever and i put my seed in the drill and a Genesis has a little seed tray. You can just turn over and it catches all seed. Others, you got to put a tarp down, blow a drill or something to catch it. Turn it and just simulate planting a hundred hundredth of an acre, and then weigh that seed. And it should be a hundred. If you're wanting to plant 50 pounds breaker, then you know it's a half a pound or a hundredth of that. And you just adjust your seed meter up or down and calibrate it. That is absolutely the toughest thing about using any drill. You just calibrate. And why wouldn't you want to calibrate? Because with this, you get a well. I don't think it's ever perfect, but an almost perfect planting versus, well, I'm going to broadcast. And we've all done this. You put it in your broadcast, read on a four wheeler or an over the shoulder model. And you're singing and you're doing, you're feeling good. And you get halfway through the plot and you've either used all your seed or you haven't <laughs> used near much.
1: Yeah, I've been there.
2: We've all done it. I've, I've done it. Yeah, we've all done it. Yo. And, and with, the, with the drill, you know, you get uh, never perfect, but an almost perfect stand at just the right spacing, all that stuff. And some people use old cord planters. Which is fine, but most old pork planters are like on 30 inch rows or 24 inch rows. Just think about this. Now you got all that sunshine coming down and causing weeds to grow. That was made that way because of the size of the combine head. It's never good plant biology to do that. Never. I plant mine at seven and a half inch rows. I plant all my species at seven and a half inch rows. And you're planting the same amount of seeds per acre, so they're still spaced out. But if you think about it, so being a 30 inch row and really competing with each other side to side, now I've got equal spacing, and they form a canopy quicker and keep the sun from hitting the soil that allows weeds to grow. And that young little seed and seedling when it first grows, you know it has a really small root system. Well, when you're on 30-inch rows, you got all that ground in the middle with fertilizer and on or whatever that the plant can't utilize. But on with every 7 half inch row, which means it only has to reach three and a half inches, man, in just a, a week or so, they're tapping all that ground. Nothing's going to waste. Yeah. So seven and a half inch rows are really really good. If you don't know turf grass and you want to get coverage really quick, is usually turf grass drills are usually three inches. They plant every three inches. Huh. Well, so, uh, and, and also if you beans, one more thing, if you put all your beans on thirty inch row, it is super easy for that old nanny doe to walk down the row and bite the top off every one. I mean literally. There's been studies on this, but when you're at seven and a half inch rows, she's got to work a lot harder and probably won't consume quite as many of your seedlings before they have a chance to get up and survive that amount of browse pressure.
1: I guess I'm going to be testing testing these theories soon, hopefully learning how to use a tool like that, and I'll report back in, in the coming months on if I've been able to figure out how to properly calibrate and do these things. Um, but it sounds like something I should be able to figure out, hopefully, with a little bit of fiddling. Um,
2: it's, it's, it's easy. Yeah. It really is.
1: So how – if we do this, if we implement a system like this, when, at what point and in what way can we measure success, whether that be success as far as improving the soil or the, the greater habitat improvements and or deer? How do you look at success with something like this and, and when do you start trying to quantify that in some
2: way? I'm not sure there is one indicator, but I had to pick one, it would be a utilization cage, which is just simply some structure, wire basket, wire cylinder that keeps deer from browsing, let's say a three foot circle or four foot circle of plants. I don't like the small ones because a deer's adult deer's tongue is about eleven inches long. So if you got a twenty inch circle, they'll reach all the way through there if they're hungry and eat every bean inside of it or whatever crop you got. So I put a utilization cage literally in every food plot, big and small. And I'm looking at the plant growth inside versus outside, which tells me a lot. You know, if it's three times taller inside the cage versus outside, I got too many deer and not enough food. And if there's no weeds inside where I'm shading it out and a bunch of weeds outside, you know, I've got some other issues going on. So that's really simple. I look at deer body weights every year, and there's a lot of factors. Okay, what do the neighbors have planted? I'm in an area where there's zero ag When I say zero, I've never seen a grain bin, a silo. There's nothing like that for counties around me. I'm in timber country. So... Uh, acorns are a factor. I might have a really heavy acorn crop and body weights may be up a little bit in the later season, not the early season, but I look at that. I look at average antler size and a really good indicator of how you're doing with your soil is before you start this, go out there with a shovel at random places, flop you a couple shovelfuls of dirt over and see if there's wormholes or worms. Again, when the soil's got some moisture, if you do this in July and hadn't rained in two months, the worms are down to six feet deep and you're not going to see them. But you know, an average spring day, go out there and whip a little soil over CPC signs of earthworms. Or if you got really good earthworm populations like I do, you start seeing their droppings. There'll be like little teepee piles on top of the soil. That's when you know you're getting there. I mean, that's all incredible fertilizer. When you got so many worms you are making droppings on top of the soil, you are growing some crops. Uh, if you want to get a little more sophisticated, you can always take forage samples and send it to any good lab. I use Walters Ag in Kentucky, W A T E R S, ag.com. And I can send them some leaves, and they're telling me the nutrient value of the leaves. Uh, so you can measure a lot of ways, but for most of us that are deer guys, a, utilisa- a, a utilization cage showing us the difference of inside and outside and a shovel can tell us an awful lot. When you when you pull a root up or you shovel a root up, are you getting a lot of root growth or is it really shallow and compacted? And, and you'll tell that because the roots go down a few inches wherever that hard zone is and then turn sideways. They turn a 90-degree angle. Then you've got a real hard pan. And you probably need to plant some radishes or something with a really strong root system to bust that hard pan.
1: That, uh, that's. I think I said. That. Yeah, I think that's. I think that's really helpful and, and, and pretty easy to to follow.
2: Yeah, I think I said earlier in the in the podcast when the best thing you can do is have boots on the ground and go out to your field. Don't just plant them and come back and hunt over them. You know, later, go out there and see what's going on. Are your, are your clover plants making a lot of big blooms, or the blooms look kind of puny? Um, you know, are, are your beans making a lot of pods or are they all browsed off? Is, a, is the the annual uh, small grains, wheat, rye, oats, are, are they browsed about lip high in January? You know, just kind of some common observations will let you know how it's working. Yeah. And the best test, of course, is for you, Mark, especially, and this takes a little bit more time, so I don't suggest a lot of people do this, but use conventional ag, till and maximum input on a part of your plot and the buffalo system on the other part. And watch it for the first year. I can tell you, conventional ag will win. I'll, I'll promise you that. Uh, but watch it for three years, and, and also watch how much money you're spending on each part and how
1: much time. It's uh, it's really, really, really intriguing. And then like I mentioned at the top, just over the last couple of weeks, as I kind of discovered this idea, and then just started diving into the literature and the articles, and, and all the different things out there, yeah, it's it's the most excited I've been about new habitat related work because it just seems to, it seems to make a whole lot of sense, both from, uh, from the, the goals that you can accomplish with it. And then just like the, the way you go about it, which just seems like much more in sync with the natural way and and much healthier for the whole place. I mean, I always like to think that we, we as hunters always talk about how we are, you know, some of the very, uh, very first and, and greatest conservationists out there. And we do a whole lot of things that, that benefit the wildlife and wild places around us, but but sometimes I feel like some of these conventional practices have been damaging stuff. I mean, you talked about the damage done to the soil and how that it really is the foundation for all the rest of the fauna and flora out there. So I feel like this is a way to kind of plug a couple of those holes in our in our processes out there and, and the ways that we can be good stewards. So so I'm I'm just really excited. I really appreciate you taking the time to walk me through all this. And uh, I guess my last question would just be. For me and or anybody else out there who is interested in learning more about this stuff, um, I guess, number one, where can we learn more from you? And then number two, do you have any recommended books or other online resources maybe where we could learn more about regenerative agriculture or any of the
2: bigger picture stuff? Yeah, great, great questions. I'm stepping on here to get some books on my shelf. When you said that, I, I'd buy them all and read a bunch on this. I'm really into it. Um, you can learn about it. Not matter of fact, our current episode is all about this. You can just go to com and you know YouTube, Roku, Apple TV, probably anywhere that streams you can find us uh, or just go to our website, growingdeer.com. And um, there's episodes in past years or current ones all about this. Uh, there's some great books out there. I want to start by saying a, a couple of organizations uh, that are really awesome. And these, some of these are government supported. So, you know, it's kind of your tax dollars at work here, but they're doing some great work. And I don't say that a lot about a lot of government agencies out there. Uh, But uh, one of them that I read a lot and care on is is S-A-R-E. S-A-R-E is the acronym. You can Google this, you'll find it. And it's Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education. And this group just does an incredible job. And they don't ask for anything from us land managers in return. There's all kinds of books and publications. A lot of them are available for free as a download. I, I like to read a book holding it by the hand. So I think the most expensive book I ever bought from was like 10 or $15. Uh, I think it's really good. A great book, a really great book that goes over these principles, probably even in more detail, is a soil owner's manual, a soil own owner's manual by John Sticka, S-T-I-K-A. He was a soil scientist in North Dakota. John Sticka, okay. S-T-I-K-A. He had a long career, and, man, he made a lot of observations from going from native pastures out there, I mean, original prairie, to maximum tillage, to people trying to regenerate and restore those, and, you know, a long career of watching these changes and becoming a believer himself. It's a small book of about 80 pages, and it's—and I give that book to people. It's just a, a great book for people who want to learn about this. Uh, the Rodale Institute. Uh, the Rodale Institute, which is – I'm getting ready to spell that for you, and I don't want to butcher it, so I'm actually going to look in here and see. Oh, uh, yes, is uh, – R-O-D-A-L-E. R-O-D-A-L-E is a nonprofit farm started 30-plus years ago by a businessman in Pennsylvania that was concerned about the nutrient quality of foods we're eating. Nutrient quality foods, and I'm sure all your listeners know – a lot of people think a lot of the major diseases we're facing in critters and certainly humans because of our nutrient poor food. For example, and I bet some of you listeners may not know this, common crops like broccoli and spinach are 40 and 50 percent or more less in nutrients than the same crop 30 years ago, wow. totally due wow. to depleted soils. There are oranges grown now that have zero vitamin C, totally due. To depleted soils, synthetic fertilizer, whatever. Uh, we're not eating as a nation. You may be eating the same amount of calories, but you are not getting the same amount of minerals that your parents got, unless you're, a, you know, an organic gardener. You know, you're you're raising your own. So, folks, what I do literally, I, I I buy thirty some odd species of garden plants. There's no magic to this. I just go to the store and start loading up my buggy, put all in a five gallon bucket, mix it all together put it in my no-till drill and drill some strips right in the middle of my food pot, right in the middle. There's no magic to this. It's, I mean, there's melons and squash and several times the beans and peas and some of them work and some of them don't, some of them I never see. And, uh, man, it's a gar- it's a weed free garden. And the only thing I do is drill it one day and then about mid summer start picking produce and bringing it in the house. Wow. And, and, you know, you can buy an acre of seed pretty cheap when you're buying in that volume and and all of a sudden, your wife really likes food blocks. And so, it's a, it's a, and of course, deer eat whatever we don't eat, so it's a great thing. Yeah. And I blend them all together. This isn't little rows of carrots and tomatoes, like, you know, in your parents' garden, you had to weed. I, I mix them all together. All of them. Plant them all together and just let whatever comes up, come up. It's it's incredible. So yeah, there's some great resources out there. Those are just a couple easy ones that are good starter ones. The, the SARE Institute uh, online, they've got all kinds of great information. Excellent. Great
1: information. Excellent. Well, Grant, I can't tell you how helpful this has been. And, and you mentioned the, the most recent episode that you guys have out. I took a look at that as well just before we chatted. And that was a really great visual um, supplement to, I think, what we talked about here today. So we highly recommend anyone out there Definitely go watch that because it will really illustrate what Grant has walked us through as well as um, like you mentioned, Grant, you have a whole lot of past videos. I saw that on YouTube you had a playlist that uh, had all the different episodes over the years you've done that were related to this you put them in a Buffalo food plot system playlist. So if you want to go back and look through the archives of growing deer TV, your team there did a great job of organizing them all there. So you can see the different things you've done over the years and how your system has progressed. Um, and I found that really interesting too. So this is really, really interesting. And I, I appreciate it, Grant.
2: Thank you. I want to say just one last thing, do what I do. Just go to YouTube and, uh, you know, search on regenerative bag or cover crops, you know, keywords, and, and one tip I'll add, I've been doing this for years, but I would watch like 2017, 2018 and forward because we're all learning all the time. So even stuff I thought about this in 2015, I may have changed my mind or done differently. So there's thousands out there. So I just watch some more current ones to get the most current information and alter it a little bit to apply to your food plot situation and have fun with it.
1: Great, great advice. Well, I'm going to be uh, putting all this into action this year. I can't wait to see how it goes, and uh, I'll keep you posted, Grant, and uh, I'm sure it's going to help.
2: Mark, thank you for the time to share with your audience, and I look forward to hearing about your project.
1: Sounds like a good plan. And that is a wrap. Um, hopefully you guys enjoy this one as much as I did. As you can tell, um, I'm just really personally intrigued by this stuff. Like I mentioned up at the top, um, nothing against conventional methods of agriculture. Like there's a place for that. I know. And I also know that I don't know everything. So I'm just figuring this out myself. Um, but I'm at least intrigued and excited about the opportunities to maybe in in some small way, do something a little bit differently that might be positive. So if you guys know more, if you want to share with me your experiences or insights or or different opinions, I'd love to hear that too. Um, I'm just all for learning. And I think this is going to be a great opportunity to do so. So until next time, thank you for listening. Thanks for being a part of this community. And until next time,
0: stay wired to hunt. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors, and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust-Resistant Griddle. So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. This griddle heats evenly edge-to-edge, reaching all the way up to 500 degrees. Get fired up for your new Weber slate rust resistant griddle. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.